We're in the book of 1 John again. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open them up. We've been studying this book now for a number of weeks. Um, and it's been quite a ride. It's a very interesting epistle, isn't it? It's not like your average Pauline epistle, like Romans or Ephesians or Corinthians. John doesn't even bother with an introduction. It's just straight into the subject that he wants to deal with. So it moves at a fast pace. And today we're going to be taking up verses 7 to 11 in the second chapter. I'm reading from the New International Version. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing to you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Amen. Thanks be to God. I pray, Lord, that you'd help me in presenting your word today. You'd help me to stick to the subject. I pray you would help me to make sense, Lord God. And in your great mercy, use my abilities, feeble as they may be, to build up and edify your church. Amen. So, so far in our study of First John, we've already journeyed through with the Apostle a consideration of the nature of Jesus Christ and his incarnation. You might remember in the very first session we did on this book, we talked about how the apostle presented Jesus as a fully man. That this is a Jesus who he has touched, who he has seen, who they have handled the word of truth. We've also held on to the Apostle's coattails as he hurries along through the book and he begins to contemplate the perfection of God in his purity and holiness. We've learned something also of the errant false beliefs of this group who John is concerned about. And we've learned about that through his statements. You know, there's those, if, if they are saying, duh, 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 then... Da, da, da. There's these if-then statements. And these false teachers, we know from what John is saying, they, they claimed that they had a relationship with God. They claimed that they were walking in the light. And even then, they believed that they were sinless. And that's actually something that I did a bit more research on this week. And uh, these false teachers, this group of people that John is warning uh, the recipients of First John about, they were called the secessionists. That's what their name is, the secessionists. Try saying that three times. Um, and these people believed some kind of hyper-spiritual things about who Jesus was. Um, they believed that he actually didn't really have a physical body, but only that it appeared that he had a physical body. But he was, in fact, spiritual. And they also believed that it was in his baptism that the eternal word that's mentioned in the first 
chapter of John's gospel, the Logos, they believed that it was the Logos that entered the man Jesus at baptism. And that before that, Jesus was just an ordinary man. It was at baptism that the Logos came and dwelt within him. Then he became the Christ, right? Now, if you think about some of the teachings that are out there today, that's actually not too far away from what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. It's actually not too far away from what a lot of word of faith pastors say, is that it was at the baptism uh, of Jesus where the dove descended that he became the Christ. And therefore, what they use, what they leverage through that is saying, well, listen, if Jesus wasn't the Christ until he was baptized in the Spirit, then you and I can just be like him. We can be just like Jesus Christ. We can become the Christ because as people uh, who are in that word of faith moment, your uh, movement, people like your, um, Kenneth Copeland would say that, that Jesus Christ was just simply a born again man. And that's effectively what these people were saying is that Jesus was a man. He was anointed with this spirit called Christ. He then became sinless in that moment. And so they were changing things about the identity of who Jesus was. And John is writing to these believers in Ephesus and the surrounding areas to correct these false teachings. It's true to say that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. And he was fully man and fully God from birth, before birth, at the moment of conception. There was this something that we call, in theological terms, the hypostatic union. Again, try saying that three times quickly. The hypostatic union, which means that God had, sorry, Jesus had two natures. Both of those natures coexisted alongside one another simultaneously, and they were complete. He was fully God and fully man at the same time. He took on human nature. If he didn't carry the fullness of human nature, he couldn't have paid for human sin. Do we see that? He needed to be fully human in order to fully pay for human sin. And equally, he needed to be fully God in order to bear the wrath of God. You see, no finite man could have bared the infinite wrath of God against sin. So Jesus, in order to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, needed to be both fully man and fully God. And this is not what these false teachers taught. They also believed themselves to be sinless. They believed in sinless perfectionism. And we heard in the first chapter of John saying, you know, if if one says that they have no sin, that they are a liar, that the truth is not in them. There's an acknowledgement from the apostle that during this life as Christians that we, we will wrestle with sin because we're still in the mortal flesh, we're still in the body. And Paul says, doesn't he, in the seventh chapter of Romans about this battle that rages within us. There's a spirit man that's alive. There's a new creation in you and I as born again believers that is now wrestling and defeating this old body of sin that the Apostle Paul talks about, which is the flesh. And it's actually the flesh, the body, the physical members in which sin resides now. So when we trip up and sin now, it's not because we aren't Christians. It's not because somehow Jesus didn't sort out our old sinful nature, which was in Adam. It's simply that we are still in the flesh, which is corrupted by sin. So when we sin nowadays as born-again Christians, it's actually sin in our flesh that's doing the sinning. It's not my new nature. Does that make sense? 
there should be an upward trend towards holiness in our lives. We should be able to see a trend towards purity and away from sin and unholiness. But we don't suddenly become perfect at the moment of conversion, do we? This is what John is preaching and wanting to correct in these churches. Ultimately, the whole letter is a letter of encouragement. Amen? So as we read this, we are going to be touching on some tough subjects. We've already touched on um, these issues here of sin and walking in the darkness. We're talking about false teaching, which is something we don't really hear an awful lot about in most modern churches. But ultimately, this is a letter of encouragement. And I hope that through our study of this, that you also will glean encouragement from it. John is wanting to exhort them, to encourage them that they are in the faith, that they truly are saved, and also that he's encouraging them to remain faithful to Jesus and to the gospel that was preached to them at first. Now last time around, uh, we considered this idea of loving God and what that looks like. That when we love God, it's more than just a feeling. Truly loving somebody always entails more than just that fuzzy, warm feeling, doesn't it? There's always actions that follow that, and that's what John is saying. If you love God, you will what? You will obey his commands. Not obeying these commandments is to show that we don't truly love God. And it's not that, let me clarify this, it's not that by obeying the commandments we love God. Because as many of you will know, you can dryly obey commandments and actually hate the institution or the person that you're obeying those commandments for. You're just doing it out of sense of duty. right? I wasn't a particularly, I don't think I was a particularly good boy at school, but I played by the rules. I did it for self-interest. I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want to sit after school in detention, so I obeyed the rules. I didn't love the teachers. I didn't think the rules were particularly sensible. I just did it because I didn't want the hassle from my mother telling me off after school. And so it's quite possible for somebody to be very religious and to actually read the Bible as a rule book. And they can obey the commandments therein, but actually be cold and dead as a doorknob to God. It was Spurgeon that said this, The essence of obedience lies in the hearty love which prompts the deed rather than in the deed itself. Does that make sense? So when we love God, we obey his commandments because it flows from love. That obedience comes from a place of adoring him. And we want to walk in holiness because it's pleasing to our Father. Now this week, we're moving on to a passage which presents us with no little difficulty. Because at first glance... This passage appears to contain a direct contradiction. And furthermore, there are several turns of phrase used by the Apostle John which actually need a little bit of elucidation. We have to shine a bit of light on these passages here in order for us in the 21st century to grasp what's really being said. The 20th century Bible scholar, a man called Robert Law, believed that the first epistle of John presents us with three tests, three litmus tests, if you will, as to whether a Christian truly knows God. The first test is a theological test. We covered this in the first four verses of chapter one. Do we believe that Jesus is God's son? 
Do we believe that he came in the flesh and that he himself is actually God along with the Father? Do we believe those things? If no, then we may claim to be a Christian, but we are truly not. And this is why when we go out onto the streets, and I will talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, it's important to make a distinction that being a Christian or not being a Christian is not based on one's profession of what they believe. I can say to anybody that I am a Christian, but if I don't believe the dogmas of Christianity, if I don't believe the core tenets of what it actually means to be a Christian, I'm a liar. I'm a liar. I'm not telling the truth. So us saying that we're a Christian does not necessarily mean that we are a Christian. And if, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, one doesn't believe that Jesus truly is the God-man, they can't be in any real sense called a Christian. In the same way that the progressive Christian, the Rob Bells of this world might say, I'm a Christian, I'm a progressive Christian, but I believe the Bible is a book written by people. It's not the word of God. Sure, it might contain some words that point us to God, but, it, but it's, not, it's not God's book. It's not his word. Well, that there is a wholly unchristian view of the Bible. It's certainly a view that Jesus would have rebuked had he heard it. So they can in no real sense call themselves Christians. There has to be a theological consensus on who Jesus is. The second test is a moral test. And this is what we talked about last week. To say you're a Christian means that your life ought to look a certain way. Do you obey his commandments? Do you love God? And is that love borne out by a study of the Bible? Do you care what the Bible says? Or is it simply there to confirm what you already believe? And sadly that's the case for many people sat in churches this Sunday is that the Bible really is there to confirm what they already think about the world. And this is why you can have so many perspectives on so many issues supposedly within Christianity. Because Christians or people who say they are Christians do not approach the Bible as God's word but simply as a tool to effectively confirm what they already believe. Is there a love of God's word in your life? Do you obey his commandments? Is there a trend in your life towards holiness and away from sin? This is the moral test. And the third test we're going to talk about today is what Mr. Law called the social test the social test of whether we're a Christian. If we truly know God, then it will be borne out, not only in our love towards God, but in our love towards fellow believers. There will be a social reality of the love of God being played out in our lives. There'll be real active love towards others in our church. Amen. So there's the three tests, theological, moral, and social. Now as we start today's scripture, I I don't want it to escape our notice, the first word here written in these verses. Now I don't know what Bibles you have, but if you've got the ESV, it will say beloved. Maybe if you've got a New King James, it might say brothers. Um, My version, the NIV, 
reading from today says, dear friends, but in the Greek, it's actually the word agapetoi, which means beloved. That's the majority reading in the original language. And I don't want that to escape our notice today, my friends, because I think it's important. I think it's important. He calls them beloved ones, beloved ones. John wasn't a career pastor. He wasn't a career man. He wasn't a man acting out of a sense of duty or obligation, all the while kind of resenting the fact that he's having to write this letter and sort the whole mess out in the first place. He actually loved the people that he was writing to. He couldn't help but write this letter. It was all he could do. And this is the same with the Apostle Paul. He constantly makes mention of his desire to be with his brothers and sisters, to be with those he's writing to. And you get the same sense in John's words, don't you? He's a man who truly cares about these people. He desperately wants to be with them and wants to bring them encouragement and to protect them from those who are trying to bring false teaching into the church. Now, personally, as, as a man who has been called uh, into pastoral ministry, this is a thought that provokes me and it prods my conscience. I have to ask myself, are you, my brothers and sisters, the people who God died for in his son, Jesus Christ, are you my beloved? That's something that should prod the conscience of every pastor. It's the litmus test of every minister. Are those who are given into their care, are they their beloved? As a pastor, do I consider you as my beloved? Or are you just bums on seats? Are you just human resources there to boost my ego and hopefully the church bank account? Now, I pray that the Lord doesn't allow me to fall into that trap, but I know that he does warn through the apostles against exactly that type of ministry that takes advantage of Christians. But this accusation of being a career man couldn't be leveled at John or the apostles who rather than getting rich off the back of the church they risked and even gave their own lives for their sake tradition has it that all but one of the apostles died horrible deaths for the sake of the church in fact I was reading this morning about a man called Ignatius of Antioch one of the early church fathers he was eaten alive by lions in front of a public audience just for his profession of faith and for being a bishop in the church incredible what these people would go to the lengths they would go to now let's move on there's this confusing little pericope this passage here he says I'm not writing you a new command but an old one now a very considerable portion of all of your New Testament epistles actually consists of the apostles addressing false teaching. And 1st, 2nd and 3rd John are no different. This isn't a subject, to be honest, that we're likely to hear about very much. If you're going to tune into any church live stream this Sunday, it's very unlikely you're going to hear about false teaching. Okay, But it was actually a major subject in the early church. And it was also a major subject right through the patristic period through the early church fathers, right through Augustine into the 4th century, and actually up into the Middle Ages. There's a brief period of silence 
during the 11th, 12th and 13th centuries when the Catholic Church ruled uh, and there was the European Christendom. Um, but then it's taken up again by the reformers, this issue of false teaching, taken up by men like Luther, Calvin, Wycliffe, and then again by the Puritans, by Jonathan Edwards, John Owen, John Bunyan, and then again by Victorian preachers like Spurgeon and J.C. Ryle, and then also by the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's widely considered to be the greatest preacher of the 20th century. All of these men were acquainted with controversy. They were all acquainted with controversy. They were zealous for truth and they were unwilling to sacrifice the truth of God's gospel for anything. In fact, J.C. Ryle said this, and this one cuts. You can't imagine this being said from a pulpit these days. He said, never let us be guilty of sacrificing any portion of truth on the altar of peace. Wow. J.C. Ryle was the Bishop of Liverpool, a Church of England man back in the Victorian era in the 19th century. I find that very interesting. These men were not content to pursue some kind of vague, vain sense of unity with people who denied central points of the gospel. Truth was more important to them than a false unity. Now, what Mr. Ryle says in never let us be guilty of sacrificing any portion of truth on the altar of peace clearly didn't spend much time with toddlers because I can tell you now, I'm often ready to sacrifice truth on the altar of peace. <laughs> but anyway, the, these, uh, these apostles were, were used to constantly having to defend the gospel. All the time, they were battle-hardened men. And some actually believe that these false teachers that John's writing to um, had been actually spreading rumors about him. They'd been sort of flipping the tables on him and saying, well, actually, no, it's not us that, the false, that are the false teachers. It's not us bringing new teachings. It's actually John. He's the one bringing new commandments in. And so that's why we read John defending himself and saying, it's not a new commandment that I'm bringing you. It's an old one. And actually, what's interesting here is that um, John is saying to them, it's not me that's bringing new commandments, it's them. This commandment that I've brought you that they're saying is new and it's me coming in and trying to change the gospel that was brought to you. He says it's a lie, you had this commandment from the beginning when you first got saved. You know what guys? A hallmark of false teaching is that false teaching is always about something new. There'll always be something new. There's no such thing as a new heresy though. They're only ever rebadged old ones, right? For the false teachers that John is addressing, it was about adding new understandings about who Jesus was, new revelations about sin. It was all hyper-spirituality. You know what? Today's no different. Today's no different. False teaching hasn't disappeared. It's just not being talked about, which is exactly how the devil likes it. In fact, the televangelist has his new list of commands, doesn't he? Oh yeah, God wants to heal you. Oh, he wants to heal you, brother. But God can't release that healing unless you sow a $100 seed right now. There's a new commandment. I don't see that in my Bible. Or the pin-up pastor, the insta-pastor, has got his set of new commands. I'm not going to be careful. I'm going to go there. And this is it. God's doing all he can. He's doing all he can to help you to live your best life now. 
But here's the deal, guys. Here's the rub. Unless you declare it over your life, God's powerless to make a change. Unless you do X, God can't do Y. New commandments. False teachings always move away from grace and into works. That's why Christianity, biblical Christianity is different than every other religion in this planet is that it is a religion of grace. Free grace. Where God does all the work because you were dead in your sins and trespasses. It is him that gives you the faith. It is him that gives you grace to cover your sins. It is him that brings you from darkness into light. It's not a 50-50 mixture. You don't have to help God out. He's God. Right? Yes, you have to make choices. Yes, he will lead you to make good choices. But the work of salvation belongs to God, not you. This idea of God doing his best but failing to get his own way is not a Christian idea. It's a false teaching. True Christianity is always about getting back to old commandments, to God's word. But now here's the confusing bit, okay? John now turns around from saying it's an old commandment and suddenly he says, no, actually, yet I am writing to you a new command. What's that about? How can this commandment that he's writing about be both old and new all at the same time? Well, I think often we've got to acknowledge that when we read the Bible, we can come across verses and we think, hang on a minute, that seems to be a direct contradiction to what I read. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, there's a contradiction right next to one another, or at least it seems. Back to back in the verses, one verse says, answer the fool according to his folly. And the other verse says, do not answer the fool according to his folly. Now it can take a little bit of study to work your way around these things, but at first glance, these appear to be contradictions in the word of God. Now at this church, we are in the minority in that we believe the scriptures are wholly inerrant. They're infallible. That everything that they treat, they treat with accuracy. I used to be quite nervous, to be honest, to, to research apparent contradictions in the Bible. I think because I was scared of what I might find, that it might undermine my faith. But I'm glad that I did. I'm glad, I'm glad that God led me there to study apologetics because the more I studied, the more I realized these are not contradictions. These are not contradictions, and this is just such an example. In fact, the gospel that these believers in, in the Ephesus region that John's writing to, these Christians, do you know what the gospel was that they read? They read from the gospel of John. They read from the gospel of John. And you know what it says in John thirteen thirty four? It says this, Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. Therefore, what is new about this command is the part about Jesus' model of love. There's a new quality to it. There's a new emphasis and a new extent. And to be honest, it's quite possible that as soon as he mentions this new commandment, that the believers knew what he was talking about. Oh yes, the new commandment from chapter 13 of your gospel. Now, it's actually backed up again in the second book of John, the, sorry, the second epistle of John. He says this, and I, now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new command, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. 
This old but new commandment is about loving one another within the body of Christ. And he says, he goes on to say, and this commandment is true in him, meaning Jesus, and in you. Well, this simply means this. The commandment was fully revealed as true in Christ. It was fully revealed in the man who laid down his life for his friends. Yet the apostle says that it's also true in them. Well, how can that be true? How could that possibly be true? How does he know that it's true in them? Well, again, I think what's happening here is we're hearing about this amazing mystical union that we share with Jesus Christ. Do you remember in Romans, in in the book of Romans, in chapter uh, 5 and into 6, there's this constant references to we were buried with him. We were raised with him. We share things in common with Jesus because he is our Lord. And here's the truth, brothers and sisters, which is just amazing. Is anything that's true of Jesus Christ is either actually now true for you or is becoming true for you in this life right now. Everything that's in him is either actually true in you right now or is becoming true in you. For example, it's true that Jesus is the righteous one, isn't it? He's sinless. He stands before God in holiness and there is no condemnation towards him. He's the perfect saviour. And it's true, the Bible tells us, that that perfect righteousness has been, past tense, has been reckoned to you. Reckoned to you. So you are righteous just as Jesus is righteous. Or there are things that are true about Jesus that are becoming true in us, such as his love for others. And how is that? Well, John uses quite a strange phrase here. He, he reasons the end of the argument like this. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now that sounds a bit cryptic to me. When I first read that, I'm like, oh, that sounds lovely. I don't understand it, but it sounds beautiful, right? And a lot of the Bible can be a bit like that, can't it? When we read it at the first glance, oh, that sounds poetic. Not sure I understand why that's a valid conclusion, but whatever. The language is poetic, and that's kind of how John writes a lot of the time. I think it's N.T. Wright that writes about his frustration with John sometimes because he's reading Paul, and Paul builds these long linear arguments, you know, step by step by step, whereas John is a bit more like, hey, look at that. Wow, isn't that beautiful? Now I'm going to turn to this over here. Oh, that's stunning, isn't it? Now I'm going to come back over here. And he's, that's how he writes. It's very poetic, and at first it doesn't really seem to present its meaning clearly. But I think John Calvin was right about this particular passage. He believed this statement about the darkness passing away and the true light already shining was actually talking about what's happening inside of us as Christians. He thought it was about something in us, something that was subjective for you and I that we're experiencing now. What was happening was that the darkness of the old sinful you is now passing away. There's a new day dawning as this light shines from Jesus Christ, his revelation into our hearts. And therefore, as that happens, this commandment becomes new to us every day. You know how this is in your Christian walk. As you walk further with Jesus, sometimes there are things in your life that are revealed that you've never seen before. 
Sometimes those things can be amazing about his love for you, about how you were made for purpose. You weren't an accident. God created you for purpose in this life right now and that you've got worth. You are loved. Sometimes those things that are revealed can be challenging. Sometimes he shows me how feeble and fickle my love is for people and how actually, oh gosh, that's a bit ugly. You know, I loved that person really for what I could get out of them, not for who they are. And that's what Calvin believed this passage was about, that as the darkness is passing away, the light of Jesus shines in our hearts and we see, oh wow, I can learn more about love here. I'm challenged to step out more in love in this particular way. So in this sense, that old commandment becomes new to us every day. The commandment to love one another grows, it develops, it changes, it's dynamic. And then here we've got this next passage here. The one saying that they are in the light and hates their brother is in the darkness until now or is still in the darkness. Now in the, in the Greek that the first part there or says, I think you might have whoever says in your Bible. In the Greek it's going back to what John was saying in the first passage, in the first chapter rather. It's holegon, which means the one saying in the light he is, but hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. So does the apostle mean their physical brothers? No, he doesn't, does he? He's not talking about their physical brothers. Neither is this phrase brothers actually linked to what Jesus talks about with the good Samaritan and loving your neighbor. To hate one's brother means to hate a fellow Christian, whether a brother or a sister in Christ. Now, do I believe that John is saying that these false teachers in Ephesus really hated the Christians that were there and showed contempt towards them and were berating them and belittling them and showing them hatred? Well, most commentators don't believe that's the case because if they were being absolute beasts to these Ephesian believers, there wouldn't be a problem, would there? Because the believers in Ephesus would think, these guys are jerks. I don't want to hear what they've got to say. I'm not going to be around these people because they're hateful. Most commentators believe it's a different type of hatred that John's talking about here. It was a hatred revealed in two ways. Firstly, it was a hatred towards John himself and to those who were with him. All of John's disciples, these false teachers, were spreading rumors about them amongst the believers. They were slandering them behind their backs. And number two, their hatred, the false teacher's hatred of their fellow Christians, it was the same kind of hatred that Esau displayed for his birthright. Do you remember that in Genesis when it talks about Esau despised his birthright? Now, did Esau say in any place in the book of Genesis, you know what, I hate my birthright. I wish it had never come to me. Um, Father, I curse you for giving me this birthright. It's not like that, is it? Esau despised his birthright because he failed to place upon it the proper value which it deserved. These false teachers by not treating their fellow brothers and sisters as their value deserved, they hated them. They hated them. Now, Jesus uses that same verb here, misown. In fact, that's an interesting one, isn't it? 
to hate somebody, according to the New Testament, is to misown them, right? When I own them properly, I love them according to their value. When I misown them, I mistreat them. Jesus uses this Greek verb here when he talks about those who will follow him. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Strong words. Was Jesus teaching that we need to stir up a vile hatred within us towards our mum and pop? That we need to hate our own kids? No. What he's saying is, is that the love you must have for me, Jesus Christ, the God-man, must be so strong that every other relationship with another human being looks like hatred in comparison. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So this hatred that the false teachers had of the other believers, it was a kind of a bastardization of love. I'm sure that the false teachers, if they'd read this letter, would have said, what lies? We do love you. We love you. You know we love you. We tell you all the time. I'll finish up in a minute. I'm nearly there. <laughs> Let me tell you about this kind of love. This kind of love that you'll find in false teachers today as well. It's a flip upside down of 1 Corinthians 13, a passage we all know from weddings. But this kind of love that the false teachers were using, it was a kind of love that was impatient, unkind, envious, boastful, proud, dishonoring, self-seeking. Have you ever experienced that type of love? Perhaps you've even been that kind of a lover. I know that I have in my life. I have sometimes loved somebody hoping for a payoff. That's the type of love with which these false teachers love the believers. It was self-seeking, it was angry, it had a long memory of all their mistakes and faults. It loved evil and hated the truth. This kind of love is unsafe, filled with paranoia. Hey Mary. It's fickle and it's without hope. John MacArthur said that the goal of a false teacher is not to create an environment of love, but to feed his ego and fill his pockets. And that's what these false teachers in Ephesus were doing. However, the believer, it says this about the believer, the one loving his brother is in the light or is abiding in the light. And there is no cause for stumbling in him. What's interesting here is that the false teacher that John's talking about, the one saying that he knows God, but hates his brother. The false teacher is a sayer, the one saying. They're saying that they love you. They're ready to say that they're in light. They're ready to say they're a true believer, but they're not a doer. They're not a doer, they're a sayer. The true Christian is a doer of love, not just a proclaimer of love. The Greek carries this sense, it's a, it's a participle, a present participle of ongoing love. It's not that I did love you, it's not that I said I loved you, it's that I am loving you now and will continue to love you as we walk together. We know that we're in the light because we do love to one another. We don't just talk about love. 
So how do we know that? How can we tell that we're doing this kind of love? Well, I think the words of Jesus sum it up best. He says this, For when I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Amen. Wow. The love in us looks like putting others' needs in this church before our own sometimes. Yeah, we're going to fail sometimes. Yeah, it's not going to be easy. But I know that's in you. Just as the same way it was in Jesus, I know it's in you. We take care of the most needy amongst us. We risk our own discomfort in order to bring comfort to one another. That's the kind of love that's in us. Just as when we were hungry, Christ came and fed us with the bread from heaven. When we were thirsty, he gave us living water to drink. When we were strangers and enemies, he welcomed us in. When we were naked and ashamed in darkness, he clothed us in his own righteousness. When we were sick with sin and imprisoned by our own flesh, he came to us and he set us free. Amen. And when we see him and how he has loved us and how patient the Lord has been with us. When we see how he has stuck with us through our entire lives, when we hated him when we lived for ourselves, when we denied him at every opportunity and we see that patient, long-suffering love that the Lord had for us, it's then that the light of Christ shines in our hearts and we begin to love one another with that same kind of patient, enduring, practical love. So let's finish on this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. Bearing with one another, amen. If one has a complaint against one another, forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Finally, a quick quote from John Chrysostom the church father, he said, he adorns love not only for what it has, but also for what it has not. Love both elicits virtue and expels vice, not permitting it to spring up at all. If we want to walk in such a way that the devil has got no hooks to get his claws into us, walk in love. We walk in love for one another. There, there'll be no cause for stumbling in us, no cause for tripping up into sin or deception. Let's pray. Mike, would you mind coming up and leading us in a song as well? We're going to sing one more song before we finish. We'd love for you all to join us as well, kiddies. Father God, we, we just pray this morning that there'd be a revelation in our hearts of your love towards us. I pray young and old 
we would recognize that your love to us has been so strong, so patient, so kind, so powerful to deliver us from darkness and bring us into this amazing kingdom of yours where we get to know you and walk with you daily. And I pray, Lord God, that we would grow in this love for one another. Lord, that you would reveal to us the heart that you have for us and therefore we'd actually walk in this kind of self-sacrificial love towards one another. Lord, we pray forgiveness for every time that we have loved somebody out of self-interest or when we have been impatient or unkind with our brothers and we ask for your forgiveness. And today we commit, Lord, that if we have held anything against a brother or sister in this fellowship, that we will seek forgiveness and we will reconcile with that brother or sister. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus that you'd accomplish all these things in our hearts today. Amen. Amen. All right. Praise God. If you'd like to stand, we're going to finish with one more song. Thank you, Mike and Pete. Bless you.